Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast. Today we'll cover what happened when Jeremy Bamber was released without charge for murder on the 13th of September 1985. This followed six days of being held in custody and enduring extensive questioning after Julie Mugford had implicated him in the deaths of his family. We'll also discuss what happened when he was released and how he was placed under police surveillance by different forces. We'll also set the record straight about Jeremy's trip to Saint-Tropez and the circumstance of his arrest and charge on his return. Finally, we'll turn to Jeremy's time on remand and how he assembled a defence team who represented him at the trial. During Jeremy's first time in custody between the 8th and 13th of September 1985, Essex police, encouraged by the prime mover DS Stanley Brian Jones, did their utmost to obtain evidence which would lead to Jeremy being charged with murder. This included attempts to entrap Jeremy during an interview when Jones threw a Bible across the table to Jeremy. We believe Jones was hoping Jeremy would pick it up and leave fingerprint impressions which could later be used to link him to the murders. Forensic tests had already been conducted on the windows of the farmhouse on multiple occasions and documents set out that the examinations showed no signs of forced entrance or exit to the farmhouse on or before the 13th of September. Forensic tests had also been conducted at the laboratory on exhibits seized from White House Farm, and even though a tiny blood flake was discovered on the 12th of September, which matched the blood and enzyme group of Jeremy's sister Sheila Caffell, there was no evidence on which the Director of Public Prosecutions could charge Jeremy with murder. The police needed more evidence in order to persuade the DPP to charge Jeremy, and it was at this stage that some of the police officers who'd attended the scene supposedly gave their first witness statements. This is, however, almost too incredible to believe. It's without doubt that statements would have been made on the day or within days of the tragedies. We believe this is exactly what happened, but these statements were then hidden away under the original case reference number first allocated when it was a murder-suicide investigation. Throughout his interviews, Jeremy provided the police with honest and prompt answers to their questions. During the interview, when he was asked about the burglary at the caravan site during March that year, he immediately admitted his role with his ex-girlfriend, Julie Mugford. Jones and the police were relentless in their questioning of Jeremy, but despite having the only witness who implicated him in the murder of his family, they still had no evidence to connect him to the incident or to charge him with after six days of interviews. Jeremy was formally charged with the burglary of the caravan site and attended court on the 13th of September. Oddly, even though Julie admitted that she was involved in the burglary, Essex police failed to charge her at that time and later she was formally granted immunity for all offences on the condition that she turned Crown's evidence against Jeremy. Jeremy's friend Rodney Brown owner of the Caribbean Cottage Restaurant, attended the court when Jeremy was charged with burglary as he wanted to offer his support. He explained in a witness statement that after the hearing I briefly spoke to Jeremy to let him know I was there if needed as there seemed to be nobody else interested in him. Jeremy was relieved to see a friendly face and Rodney borrowed a white Daimler to drive him back to Whitham Police Station and collect his belongings. 
Following his release, police launched a surveillance operation on Jeremy, and this began with immediate effect and continued for the next three days. The following is what the surveillance recorded. After visiting a wine bar in Whitham for lunch, Rodney dropped Jeremy off at the train station and he caught the next train to Liverpool Street in London. From there, Jeremy took the tube and finished his journey to Sheila's apartment by taxi. He met up with Brett Collins and the friends went for a walk around Paddington Green Recreational Ground before returning to the apartment where they changed ready for an evening out. They first went to Peppermint Park, a cocktail bar in Covent Garden, before going to Stringfellow's Club next door. Later in the early hours, they went to the Sunrise Cafe for a meal with friends who later dropped them off at Sheila's flat. Later still the same morning, Jeremy and Brett went to Holmes Health Club on Fulham Road, visited a cafe for lunch and finally had a look at the shops before returning to Sheila's flat, where they remained for the rest of the day and evening. Jeremy spent Sunday in Covent Garden with a further visit to the gym and in the evening he met up with his friend Angela Greaves and they went for a meal together before Jeremy made his way back alone to Sheila's flat. It was also during this time that Brett suggested to Jeremy he should speak to the media who were relentless in pursuing him for a story. Brett arranged for Jeremy to meet Sun journalist Michael Fielder for the sole purpose of giving his side of the tragic events. This meeting has caused a lot of myth and speculation over the years. Fielder asserted Jeremy went to sell him soft porn photographs of Sheila. However, this can now be disproven because by the day of the meeting, Jeremy had given Sheila's ex-husband, Colin Caffell, all of the photographs. This is confirmed by Colin, who gave evidence in his witness statement during September. The slides had been professionally taken and were of Sheila in various states of undress in a paddling pool. I think I would describe these slides as soft pornography, as they were quite explicit in detail. I asked Jeremy if I could take these slides so that I could destroy them. He agreed that I can take them, which I did. And Colin further admitted that he didn't destroy the images, but instead I disposed of them by putting them in the dustbin. I did in fact place the slides into a dustbin liner and handed them to a refuse collector to ensure they went into the dust cart. It's clear, therefore, that nine days before Jeremy allegedly negotiated the sale of these photographs to Fielder, that he had already passed them to Colin because he had no intention of selling them, and the story about Jeremy trying to sell the pictures is untrue. Brett suggested to Jeremy that they should have a few days away, and Jeremy agreed, it was decided they'd take a break to France and Jeremy drove to the port of Dover where they boarded a ferry to begin a 10-day bargain break holiday just outside Saint-Tropez. The police leaked the story of Jeremy's holiday and the press produced a fictional account about where Jeremy had been and what he'd been doing. This was exaggerated and misrepresented in the ITV drama White House Farm, that portrayed the holiday as being a wild time away, full of expensive hotels, sex with wealthy women and partying. The truth of the matter is that the holiday was very inexpensive, costing just £80 for a six-berth caravan. It was the end of the season and prices had been reduced considerably. Jeremy spent the majority of time alone whilst Brett was out seeking entertainment. During the time Jeremy was away, police hurriedly gathered statements from officers in most cases, these were apparently the first ones they wrote. They also created additional evidence on one of the case silencers. As this issue is set out in detail within the submissions to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, we'll disclose this evidence in a future episode.
DSI Ainsley, who was leading the investigation against Jeremy, also wrote an interim report for the DPP during the time Jeremy was away. The report was dated the 23rd of September and two days later was taken to be discussed at a meeting in the offices of the DPP. This report was a catalogue of fabrications written to influence the decision that Jeremy should be charged with the murder of five members of his family. As a result of this meeting and discussion, the DPP issued a letter which stated I confirm that arising from this conference, the director considers that there is sufficient evidence to justify charging Bamba with the murders of his father, mother, sister and two nephews. Oblivious to this authority now being granted to charge him, the ferry carrying Jeremy and Brett docked at Dover at approximately half past four on the afternoon of the 29th of September. After disembarking, the two friends were immediately apprehended in the HM Customs and Excise Car Hall by DC Davidson and DS Harry Hutchinson. Davidson eventually informed Jeremy that he was being arrested on suspicion of murder and he was detained at the Kent Police Office until additional officers from Essex Constabulary arrived. Brett was free to leave, but he took £200 from Jeremy to cover his holiday expenses before leaving him with the police. At quarter to six, the three Essex police officers, D.I. Robert Miller, D.S. Stanley Brian Jones and D.C. Michael Clark arrived at Eastern Docks. Jones read Jeremy his rights and placed him in handcuffs, even though they had no intention of driving back to Chelmsford for a considerable time. Jeremy was recovering from food poisoning and made the officers aware and quietly, eyes closed, he rested his head against the wall, waiting for the transport back to Essex to be arranged. Miller spoke to Jeremy briefly about his medication of Valium, which Jeremy had been prescribed since the day of the tragedies, and Miller explained what would happen to Jeremy's Vauxhall Astra car. For the next hour, Jeremy sat quietly, occasionally humming to himself and pulling fibres from his jumper, which he chewed, as he'd done in the interviews after his first arrest three weeks before. He has since said that this was just a habit and something that he did often. It wasn't conscious or deliberate. Investigations into body language state that picking fluff or fibres from clothes whilst in a conversation can be a subconscious action when you don't agree or appreciate the opinions of the person you're speaking to. As this was an observation made by police officers whilst talking to Jeremy, particularly during the interview with Jones, it's a clear indication that Jeremy subconsciously did not agree with the comments, actions and questions of Jones. Soon, at 7.20pm, police led Jeremy to the waiting car and informed him that a solicitor had been arranged to meet him on his arrival at the police station. Soon the car reached the Essex side of the Dartford Tunnel when Clark and Miller left the car for five minutes, leaving Jeremy alone with Stan Jones. Jones later gave evidence in a statement that during the time they were alone, Jeremy did not say a single word but apparently didn't take his eyes off Jones, which caused Jones to say, I don't like you continually staring at me, but if you get some satisfaction out of it, carry on. And Jeremy did just that. This comes as no surprise, though, considering the grilling, goading and attempts of entrapment and off-the-cuff remarks Jones had made to Jeremy three weeks previously in his interviews. Throughout the remainder of the journey, Jeremy said very little, apart from asking if any of the officers had visited Saint-Tropez and commented about the roads and congestion. 
On arrival at Chelmsford Police Station, Jeremy was taken into the charge room where his possessions were documented and 45 minutes later, Jones formally charged Jeremy with five counts of murder. On the morning of Monday the 30th of September, Jeremy was taken to Maldon Magistrates Court where he only spoke to confirm his name and that he understood the charges. The decision was made to remand him in custody. The sole reason for this was because his solicitor, Bruce Bowler, had not applied for bail because he claimed he'd not had time to prepare the application. He'd intended to do so at Jeremy's next court appearance. Robert Bowflower, the key prosecution witness who'd made major contributions of lies to engineer this moment, sat in the public gallery at the court, no doubt proud of himself for his actions, which assisted in having Jeremy charged. When he left the court, Jeremy saw a small group of his friends across the road who shouted well wishes at him. This caused Jeremy to give them a reassuring smile. However, the gathered media could not wait to capture the image of Jeremy smiling as he left the court and used it in their reports with headlines such as Bambi's brother leaves court with a smile. Jeremy was then escorted to a green prison transportation van destined for Norwich Prison. Jeremy Bamba has not been a free man since this day. On his arrival at Norwich Prison, Jeremy was immediately placed on the hospital wing. This was normal procedure for all prisoners charged with capital offences. Two days later, he learned that he'd been given a Category A security status, one which is still enforced on him to this day. As a remand prisoner, Jeremy was allowed daily visits from family and friends and was visited almost immediately by his former house mother from Gresham School, the boarding school he attended from eight years of age. This lady has remained a friend of Jeremy's to this day and supports him in his fight for justice, with them frequently exchanging letters. Whilst on remand, Jeremy initially used the services of Chelmsford solicitors, Hillard and Ward. He explained to us that the police employed a trick whereby he was held over 100 miles away from Chelmsford at Norwich Prison and this caused difficulties because his legal representatives were unable to travel to see him. Therefore, Jeremy could only meet his legal representatives when he was taken for court hearings, which were initially held every seven days and then later every 28 days. During this time, Angie Greaves, the sister of Virginia, Jeremy's girlfriend at the time, told him she would ask her godfather, Sir David Napley of Kingsley Napley Solicitors, if he would be able to help with Jeremy's defence case. Sir David Napley, who had represented many high-profile clients, including Liberal leader Jeremy Thorpe when he was charged with murder in the 1970s, explained to Angie that he would not be able to take the case under legal aid, but that his colleague, Paul Terzian, would, with Mr Geoffrey Rivling QC taking the lead of the case, and so the basis of Jeremy's defence team was born. After several weeks of imprisonment, Jeremy was moved from the hospital wing onto general population where he could mix with other prisoners. During his time in Norwich, probably owing to the travelling distance to see his client, Paul Terzian visited Jeremy once over a two-day period when he took a statement. However, after eight months at Norwich, Jeremy was moved to Brixton Prison in London, which then meant that visits from Terzian became much easier and more frequent. Two weeks after arriving at Brixton, Jeremy was moved on to Secure A, one of the two Category A wings. Amenities in the cells were sparse and each contained just a bed, a table, a chair and a bucket for a toilet. Because he was still on remand, Jeremy was permitted daily visits which were simple to organise and although there was no access to telephones on the wing, arrangements could be made through the probation office if a prisoner needed to make a telephone call. 
Jeremy was able to wear his own clothes and could have food taken in by visitors. On legal visits, either Paul Terzian or his junior solicitor Aileen Calhoun saw Jeremy in order to make preparations for the trial. Jeremy explained to us that the police had provided a file of original case papers which was full of nonsense invented by the relatives or police officers. It was with this limited file of evidence which his legal team used as a basis to build his defence case. Knowing what we know now following disclosure in 2011, it's easy to see how his defence team were fighting an inevitable losing battle. Jeremy saw Geoffrey Rivlin approximately six times prior to the trial, but he sensed that Rivlin did not believe what he was saying at times. Jeremy told us that he'd no confidence that Rivlin would represent him properly and that he didn't like him as a person. Jeremy said, He was creepy with a damp, weak handshake. He would pressure me to come up with answers, but I had none to give most of the time. I'd tell him I, I don't know, but that wasn't enough for Rivlin. I know that he was simply a second prosecutor. He failed to represent my interests. The trial was scheduled to take place at Chelmsford Crown Court on the 2nd of October 1986, and instead of moving to a prison closer to the court, Jeremy was transported from Brixton to Chelmsford and back again every day, a journey which took approximately an hour each way. It's been written in poorly researched books that Jeremy had a psychiatric evaluation pre-trial. In her book, published in 2015, Caroline Lee stated that The psychiatrist engaged by Bamba's defence team said that his very real belief that he had not committed the murders was a prime reason for diagnosing him as a psychopath, concluding that he did kill his family and had suppressed the knowledge until it no longer existed. He added, if ever there was a psychopath, it's Jeremy Bamba. This was an invention by Lee and the documented evidence states, in a 1986 document entitled Further advice, which was written by Edward Lawson, Jeremy's junior barrister at the trial, leading counsel and I have also discussed the possibility, desirability of calling for psychiatric and or psychological tests or a brain scan to be performed on our lay client. We are both of the firm opinion that such steps are neither desirable nor necessary. We asked Jeremy if he'd undergone such evaluations and he informed us that he'd been asked but he'd refused and, as his defence team felt tests were not necessary, none were undertaken. In addition, further proving the Caroline Lee book to contain her own inventions is a ruling by Judge Tugnaught presiding during 2014 as part of an appeal by Jeremy against his whole life tariff. The ruling states... It is accepted that there is no indication that the applicant suffers from a mental illness. The reports available at the trial were limited by the unwillingness of the applicant to submit to medical examination, but the effect of the reports was that he was not suffering from a mental illness. During the aftermath of the trial, DCI Dickinson confirmed that the prosecution case was exceptionally weak. As part of his inquiry, he asserted that the tiny speck of blood in a sound moderator attributed to Sheila Caffell and the evidence of Julie Mugford were the fundamental basis on which the conviction was achieved. Mr Rivlin should have destroyed Julie's credibility as a witness but failed to do so. Nevertheless, it can now be shown that the lack of disclosure of statements played a huge part of Jeremy's conviction, resulting in the jury not hearing about the true extent of Julie's criminal past, all the lies she told and the conflicts in evidence, along with her determination to see her ex-boyfriend convicted. 
The issue of blood in the sound moderator should also have been dealt with far more robustly. It was presented with minimum evidence, incomplete and altered forensic records. The non-disclosure we're now aware of proves that Essex police were not being honest and can now be shown to have greatly impeded Mr Rivlin's understanding of the issues and prevented him from being able to challenge them as robustly and thoroughly as he could have. Mr Rivlin did make multiple errors in failing to question witnesses to the full degree. On several occasions he provided them with answers to his own questions. Rivlin certainly could have argued many issues more robustly and should not have swiftly moved on rather than pursuing a point. For certain, he should have focused more thoroughly on the evidence that the blood discovered in a silencer could have originated from the estate beneficiary and prosecution witness Robert Beauflower. Rivlin failed to do this and refused the prosecution request that Beauflower should be further questioned regarding the blood in the moderator. Instead, Rivlin refused to question Beauflower and sought the judge's agreement that this should not happen when pressed on it by the prosecutor, Anthony Arledge, who wanted the court to be told. Years later, during an interview for a production company, Rivlin stated he didn't want to question Robert Beauflower about the possibility it was his blood, as Rivlin didn't want to be seen as suggesting the blood was planted. However, even if that was the reason for his huge failure to disclose key evidence to the jury, Rivlin perhaps could have emphasised that it was highly unusual, if not impossible, for a drop of Sheila's blood to lodge itself between two baffle plates in a sound moderator without blood from any of the other victims being found anywhere, either in it or on it. He could have argued that two forensic scientists involved in the examination of sound moderators both conceded that they would have expected blood from Nicholas and Daniel Caffell, June Bamba and Neville Bamba to also be inside the moderator and they would have expected blood from the victims to be on the outside of the silencer. In addition, it seems very odd that the defence failed to call their own ballistics blood experts to give evidence at trial, even though they could have addressed many of the Crown's assertions at the time. We asked Jeremy about the tactics that Rivlin had prepared for the trial, and Jeremy said that no tactics were discussed with him, and he does not believe that Rivlin actually had any. Jeremy also said that Rivlin would not challenge the police when they took the stand and Jeremy asked him to expose the relatives as liars. Rivlin told him, I can't do that. And when Jeremy encouraged his team to show that Sheila was responsible, they claimed it wasn't permitted as the defence were there to defend Jeremy and not to prosecute Sheila. Rivlin appeared to be reluctant to challenge anyone on the testimony they gave and there were instances during the trial when Rivlin intervened in the questioning process and appeared to assist prosecution witnesses when they were struggling to explain something. It was only due to Jeremy passing notes to his lawyer that some of the important questions were asked at all. In total over the course of the trial, the prosecution called 59 witnesses and read segments from the witness statements of a further nine. Whilst the defence produced just six witnesses, including Jeremy, and read sections of statements from 15, many more statements that supported Jeremy were of course not disclosed by police pre-trial, including those of foster carers of Sheila's children, Nicholas and Daniel, which supported Jeremy's account that on the night of the shootings the Bambas were considering fostering once more. The vast majority of the handwritten statements made by key witnesses and police officers remain hidden to this day. 
Witnesses who could have testified about Sheila's mental health and capacity for violence were not called to give evidence. For example, Farhad Imami was not called to the stand. He'd witnessed many of Sheila's outbursts, her violence and her inability to cope with life and the children. He could have talked of his first-hand experience of her illness and outbursts and the effect on her life conduct and decision-making. Therefore, the jury were left with just the evidence of Sheila's psychiatrist, Dr Ferguson, who, perhaps because his professional reputation was at stake, appeared to play down Sheila's propensity for violence. This was discussed in episode 16. Farhad Imami would have given a more realistic testimony to her capacity for violence on occasions, and it is without question that the defence were at a huge disadvantage, as neither Sheila's medical records nor her diaries were disclosed to them, despite repeated requests. These documents would have reflected not only a professional opinion of her paranoid schizophrenia, but would have revealed her state of mind during the build-up to the tragic events. Had this information been available, it would have enabled Rivlin to ask more questions about Sheila's state of mind, but as it was, he could only use the limited and somewhat sparse evidence contained in the witness statements of Dr Ferguson. Sheila's medical records remain undisclosed to this day and we've recently made a request to the Criminal Cases Review Commission to obtain these important documents. In the analysis of everything which happened to Jeremy from his first arrest to the trial, the odds were stacked against him, not because he was guilty, but because of the determination of key Essex police officers, the relatives and Julie Mugford to ensure that he was convicted. From the moment he left the police station after his first arrest and release without charge for the murders, police and the relatives' actions intensified. Statements which were hidden were now requested to be rewritten and forensic evidence was manufactured and the DPP was lied to. Jeremy was scrutinised by covert surveillance and his actions, even a smile at friends, was then used against him to taint his character. Even to this day, the media and filmmakers are relentless in stating Jeremy is a psychopath. And yet, we have shared with you previously undisclosed evidence from judges which sets out that this is not the case and never has been. Had the jury heard the complete facts as we know them now, had his defence team been more forceful in their questioning of witnesses, had the photograph statements, medical records and forensic records been disclosed pre-trial, and had witnesses been asked the correct questions rather than questioned in the apparent timid way they were, then we believe that the jury would have reached an entirely different verdict. Jeremy, his campaign team, his patrons and supporters, and of course his legal team, still fight for disclosure, still fight for the courts to hear the true facts of the case, and still fight for this appalling miscarriage of justice to be rectified. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to do something to help Jeremy Bamber, then sign our online petition to the Home Secretary for the disclosure of case documents still withheld by Essex Police. Visit www.change.org and search for Jeremy Bamber. And don't forget to share the link with your friends and family.